Chapter Nineteen of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nineteen, The Chamberlain's Story. I perceive, sir," said Mister Quarterpage as Spargo entered the library, "that you have read the account of the Maitland trial." Twice," replied Spargo. "And you have come to the conclusion that. But what conclusion have you come to?" asked Mister Quarterpage. "'That the silver ticket in my purse was Maitland's property,' said Spargo, who was not going to give all his conclusions at once. "'Just so,' agreed the gentleman. "'I think so. I can't think anything else. But I was under the impression that I could have accounted for that ticket, just as I am sure I can account for the other forty-nine. "'Yes, and how?' asked Spargo. Mr. Quarterpage turned to a corner cupboard, and in silence produced a decanter, and two curiously shaped old wine-glasses. He carefully polished the glasses with a cloth which he took from a drawer, and set glasses and decanter on a table in the window, motioning Spargo to take a chair in proximity thereto. He himself pulled up his own elbow-chair. "'We'll take a glass of my old brown sherry,' he said. "'Though I say it as shouldn't, as the saying goes, I don't think you could find better brown sherry than that from Land's End to Berwick-upon-Tweed, Mr. Spargo. No, nor further north, either, where they used to have good taste in liquor in my young days. Well, here's your good health, sir, and I'll tell you about Maitland. I'm curious, said Spargo, and about more than Maitland. I want to know about a lot of things arising out of that newspaper report. I want to know something about the man referred to so much, the stockbroker, Chamberlain. "'Just so,' observed Mr. Quarterpage, smiling. "'I thought that would touch your sense of the inquisitive. "'But Maitland first. "'Now, when Maitland went to prison, "'he left behind him a child, a boy, "'just then about two years old. "'The child's mother was dead. "'Her sister, a Miss Bayliss, appeared on the scene. "'Maitland had married his wife from a distance, "'and took possession of the child "'and of Maitland's personal effects.' He had been made bankrupt while he was awaiting his trial, and all his household goods were sold. But this Miss Bayless took some small personal things, and I always believed that she took the silver ticket. And she may have done, for anything I know to the contrary. Anyway, she took the child away, and there was an end of the Maitland family in Market Milcaster. Maitland, of course, was, in due procedure of things, removed to Dartmoor, and there he served his term. There were people who were very anxious to get hold of him when he came out, the bank people, for they believed he knew more about the disposition of that money than he'd ever told, and they wanted to induce him to tell what they hoped he knew. Between ourselves, Mr. Spargo, they were going to make it worth his while to tell. Spargo tapped the newspaper which he had retained while the old gentleman talked. Then they didn't believe what his counsel said, that Chamberlain got all the money— he asked. Mr. Quarterpage laughed. No, nor anybody else, he answered. There was a strong idea in the town, you'll see why afterwards, that it was all a put-up job, and that Maitland cheerfully underwent his punishment, knowing that there was a nice fortune waiting for him when he came out. And, as I say, the bank people meant to get hold of him, but though they sent a special agent to meet him on his release— they never did get hold of him. 
some mistake arose when maitland was released he got clear away nobody's ever heard a word of him from that day to this unless miss bayless has where does this miss bayless live asked spargo well i don't know replied mr quarterpage she did live in brighton when she took the child away and her address was known and i have it somewhere but when the bank people sought her out after maitland's release she too had clean disappeared and all efforts to trace her failed in fact according to the folks who lived near her in brighton she'd completely disappeared with the child five years before so there wasn't a clue to maitland he served his time made a model prisoner they did find that much out earned the maximum remission was released and vanished and for that very reason there's a theory about him in this very town to this very day what asked spargo this that he's now living comfortably luxuriously abroad on what he got from the bank replied mr quarterpage they say that the sister-in-law was in the game that when she disappeared with the child she went abroad somewhere and made a home ready for maitland and that he went off to them as soon as he came out do you see i suppose that was possible said spargo quite possible sir but now continued the old gentleman replenishing the glasses now we come on to the chamberlain story it's a good deal more to do with the maitland story than appears at first sight i'll tell it to you and you can form your own conclusions chamberlain was a man who came to market milcaster i don't know from where in eighteen eighty six five years before the maitland smash-up he was then about maitland's age a man of thirty-seven or eight he came as clerk to old mr vallas the rope and twine manufacturer vallas's place is still there at the bottom of the high street near the river though old vallas is dead he was a smart cute pushing chap this chamberlain he made himself indispensable to old vallas and old vallas paid him a rare good salary he settled down in the town and he married a town girl one of the corkindales the saddlers when he'd been here three years unfortunately she died in childbirth within a year of their marriage it is very soon after that that chamberlain threw up his post at vallis's and started business as a stock and share broker he'd been a saving man he'd got a nice bit of money with his wife he always let it be known that he had money of his own and he started in a good way he was a man of the most plausible manners he'd have coaxed butter out of a dog's throat if he'd wanted to the moneyed men of the town believed in him i believed in him myself mr spargo i'd many a transaction with him and i never lost aught by him on the contrary he did very well for me he did well for most of his clients there were of course ups and downs but on the whole he satisfied his clients uncommonly well but naturally nobody ever knew what was going on between him and maitland i gather from this report said spargo that everything came out suddenly unexpectedly that was so sir replied mr quarterpage sudden unexpected ay as a crack of thunder on a fine winter's day nobody had the ghost of a notion that anything was wrong john maitland was much respected in the town much thought of by everybody well known to everybody i can assure you mr spargo 
that it was no pleasant thing to have to sit on that grand jury as i did i was foreman sir and hear a man sentenced that you'd regarded as a bosom friend but there it was how was the thing discovered asked spargo anxious to get at facts in this way replied mr quarterpage the market milcaster bank is in reality almost entirely the property of two old families in the town the gutchbys and the hostables owing to the death of his father a young hostable fresh from college came into the business he was a shrewd keen young fellow he got some suspicion somehow about maitland and he insisted on the other partners consenting to a special investigation and on their making it suddenly and maitland was caught before he had a chance but we're talking about chamberlain yes about chamberlain agreed spargo well now maitland was arrested one evening continued mr quarterpage of course the news of his arrest ran through the town like wildfire everybody was astonished he was at that time ay and had been for years a church warden at the parish church and i don't think there could have been more surprise if we'd heard that the vicar had been arrested for bigamy in a little town like this news is all over the place in a few minutes of course chamberlain would hear that news like everybody else but it was remembered and often remarked upon afterwards that from the moment of maitland's arrest nobody in market milcaster ever had speech with chamberlain again after his wife's death he'd taken to spending an hour or so of an evening across there at the dragon where you saw me and my friends last night but on that night he didn't go to the dragon and next morning he caught the eight o'clock train to london he happened to remark to the station-master as he got into the train that he expected to be back late that night and that he should have a tiring day of it but chamberlain didn't come back that night mr spargo he didn't come back to market milcaster for four days and when he did come back it was in a coffin dead exclaimed spargo that was sudden very sudden agreed mr quarterpage yes sir he came back in his coffin did chamberlain on the very evening on which he'd spoken of being back there came a telegram here to say that he died very suddenly at the cosmopolitan hotel that telegram came to his brother-in-law corkindale the saddler you'll find him down the street opposite the town hall it was sent to corkindale by a nephew of chamberlain's another chamberlain stephen who lived in london and was understood to be on the stock exchange there i saw that telegram mr spargo and it was a long one it said that chamberlain had had a sudden seizure and though a doctor had been got to him he died shortly afterwards now as chamberlain had his nephew and friends in london his brother-in-law tom corkingdale didn't feel that there was any necessity for him to go up to town so he just sent off a wire to stephen chamberlain asking if there was aught he could do and next morning came another wife from stephen saying that no inquest would be necessary as the doctor had been present and able to certify the cause of death and would corkindale make all arrangements for the funeral two days later you see chamberlain had bought a vault in our cemetery when he buried his wife so naturally they wished to bury him in it with her spargo nodded he was beginning to imagine all sorts of things and theories he was taking everything in 
Well, continued Mr. Quarterpage, on the second day after that, they brought Chamberlain's body down. Three of them came with it. Stephen Chamberlain, the doctor who'd been called in, and a solicitor. Everything was done according to proper form and usage. As Chamberlain had been well known in the town, a good number of townsfolk met the body at the station and followed it to the cemetery. Of course, many of us who had been clients of Chamberlain's were anxious to know how he had come to such a sudden end. According to Stephen Chamberlain's account, our Chamberlain had wired to him and to his solicitor to meet him at the Cosmopolitan to do some business. They were awaiting him there when he arrived, and they had lunch together. After that, they got to their business in a private room. Towards the end of the afternoon, Chamberlain was taken suddenly ill, and though they got a doctor to him at once, he died before evening. The doctor said he'd had a diseased heart. Anyhow, he was able to certify the cause of his death, so there was no inquest, and they buried him, as I have told you. The old gentleman paused, and, taking a sip at his sherry, smiled at some reminiscence which occurred to him. "'Well,' he said, presently going on, "'of course, on that came all the Maitland revelations, and Maitland vowed and declared that Chamberlain had not only had nearly all the money, but that he was absolutely certain that most of it was in his hands in hard cash. But Chamberlain, Mr. Spargo, had left practically nothing.' All that could be traced was about three or four thousand pounds. He'd left everything to his nephew, Stephen. There wasn't a trace, a clue, to the vast sums with which Maitland had entrusted him. And then people began to talk, and they said what some of them say to this very day. "'What's that?' asked Spargo. Mr. Quarterpage leaned forward and tapped his guest on the arm. That Chamberlain never did die, and that the coffin was weighted with lead, he answered. End of chapter 19this remarkable declaration awoke such a new conception of matters in Spargo's mind, aroused such infinitely new possibilities in his imagination, that for a full moment he sat silently staring at his informant, who chuckled with quiet enjoyment at his visitor's surprise. "'Do you mean to tell me,' said Spargo at last, "'that there are people in this town who still believe that the coffin in your cemetery, which is said to contain Chamberlain's body, contains lead lots of em my dear sir replied mr quarterpage lots of em go out in the street and ask the first six men you meet and i'll go bail that four out of the six believe it then why in the sacred name of common sense did no one ever take steps to make certain asked spargo why didn't they get an order for exhumation because it was nobody's particular business to do so answered mr quarterpage you don't know country town life my dear sir in towns like market milcaster folks talk and gossip a great deal but they're always slow to do anything it's a case of who'll start first of initiative and if they see it's going to cost anything then they'll have nothing to do with it but the bank people 
suggested Spargo. Mr. Quarterpage shook his head. They're amongst the lot who believe that Chamberlain did die, he said. They're very old-fashioned, conservative-minded people, the Gutchbys and the Hostables, and they accepted the version of the nephew and the doctor and the solicitor. But now I'll tell you something about those three. There was a man here in the town, a gentleman of your own profession, who came to edit that paper you've got on your knee. He got interested in this Chamberlain case, and he began to make inquiries with the idea of getting hold of some good... What do you call it? I suppose he'd call it copy, said Spargo. Copy, that was his term, agreed Mr. Quarterpage. Well, he took the trouble to go to London to ask some quiet questions of the nephew, Stephen. That was just twelve months after Chamberlain had been buried, and he found that Stephen Chamberlain had left England months before. Gone, they said, to one of the colonies, but they didn't know which. And the solicitor had also gone, and the doctor couldn't be traced. No, sir, not even through the medical register. What do you think of all that, Mr. Spargo? I think, answered Spargo, that Market Milcaster folk are considerably slow. I should have had that death and burial inquired into. The whole thing looks to me like a conspiracy. Well, sir, it was, as I say, nobody's business, said Mr. Quarterpage. The newspaper gentleman tried to stir up interest in it, but it was no good, and very soon afterwards he left, and there it is. Mr. Quarterpage, said Spargo, what's your own honest opinion? The old gentleman smiled. Ah, he said, I've often wondered, Mr. Spargo, if I really have an opinion on that point. I think what I probably feel about the whole affair is that there was a good deal of mystery attaching to it. But we seem, sir, to have gone a long way from the question of that old silver ticket which you've got in your purse. Now... No, said Spargo, interrupting his host with an accompanying wag of his finger. No, I think we're coming nearer to it. Now you've given me a great deal of your time, Mr. Quarterpage, and told me a lot. And, first of all, before I tell you a lot, I'm going to show you something. And Spargo took out of his pocket-book a carefully mounted photograph of John Marbury, the original of the process picture which he had had made for the watchman. He handed it over. "'Do you recognise that photograph as that of anybody you know?' he asked. "'Look at it well and closely.' Mr. Quarterpage put on a special pair of spectacles and studied the photograph from several points of view. "'No, sir,' he said at last, with a shake of the head. "'I don't recognise it at all.' "'Can't see in it any resemblance to any man you've ever known?' asked Spargo. "'No, sir, none,' replied Mr. Quarterpage. "'None whatever.' "'Very well,' said Spargo, laying the photograph on the table between them. Now then, I want you to tell me what John Maitland was like when you knew him. Also, I want you to describe Chamberlain as he was when he died, or was supposed to die. You remember them, of course, quite well. Mr. Quarterpage got up and moved to the door. I can do better than that, he said. I can show you photographs of both men as they were just before Maitland's trial. 
I have a photograph of a small group of Market Milcaster notabilities which was taken at a municipal garden party. Maitland and Chamberlain are both in it. It's been put away in a cabinet in my drawing-room for many a long year, and I've no doubt it's as fresh as when it was taken. He left the room and presently returned with a large mounted photograph, which he laid on the table before his visitor. "'There you are, sir,' he said, quite fresh, you see. "'You must be getting on to twenty years since that was taken out of the drawer that it's been kept in. "'Now, that's Maitland, and that's Chamberlain.' Spargo found himself looking at a group of men who stood against an ivy-covered wall in the stiff attitudes in which photographers arranged masses of sitters. He fixed his attention on the two figures indicated by Mr. Quarterpage, and saw two medium-heighted, rather sturdily built men, about whom there was nothing very specially noticeable. Hmm, he said musingly, both bearded. Yes, they both wore beards, full beards, assented Mr. Quarterpage. And you see, they weren't so much alike, but Maitland was a much darker man than Chamberlain and he had brown eyes, while Chamberlain's were rather a bright blue. The removal of a beard makes a great difference, remarked Spargo. He looked at the photograph of Maitland in the group, comparing it with that of Marbury which he had taken from his pocket. And twenty years makes a difference, too, he added musingly. To some people twenty years makes a vast difference, sir, said the old gentleman. To others it makes none. I haven't changed much, they tell me, during the past twenty years. But I've known men change, age almost beyond recognition, in five years. It depends, sir, on what they go through. Spargo suddenly laid aside the photographs, put his hands in his pockets and looked steadfastly at Mr. Quarterpage. Look here, he said, I'm going to tell you what I'm after, Mr. Quarterpage. I'm sure you've heard all about what's known as the Middle Temple murder, the Marbury case. Yes, I've read of it, replied Mr. Quarterpage. Have you read the accounts of it in my paper, The Watchman? asked Spargo. Mr. Quarterpage shook his head. I've only read one newspaper, sir, since I was a young man, he replied. I take the time, sir. We always took it, aye, even in the days when newspapers were taxed. "'Very good,' said Spargo. "'But perhaps I can tell you a little more than you've read, "'for I've been working up that case "'ever since the body of the man known as John Marbury was found. "'Now, if you'll just give me your attention, "'I'll tell you the whole story from that moment until now.' "'And Spargo briefly, succinctly, "'retold the story of the Marbury case "'from the first instant of his own connection with it "'until the discovery of the silver ticket.' and Mr. Quarterpage listened in rapt attention, nodding his head from time to time as the younger man made his points. "'And now, Mr. Quarterpage,' concluded Spargo, "'this is the point I've come to. I believe that the man who came to the Anglo-Orient Hotel as John Marbury, and who was undoubtedly murdered in Middle Temple Lane that night, was John Maitland. I haven't a doubt about it after learning what you tell me about the silver ticket.' I've found out a great deal that's valuable here, and I think I'm getting nearer to a solution of the mystery. That is, of course, to find out who murdered John Maitland, or Marbury. What you have told me about the Chamberlain affair has led me to think that this, there may have been people or a person in London, 
who was anxious to get marbury as we'll call him out of the way and who somehow encountered him that night anxious to silence him i mean because of the chamberlain affair and i wondered as there is so much mystery about him and as he won't give any account of himself if this man aylmore was really chamberlain yes i wondered that but aylmore's a tall finely built man quite six feet in height and his beard though it's now getting grizzled has been very dark and chamberlain you say was a medium-sized fair man with blue eyes that's so assented mr quarterpage yes a middling-sized man and fair very fair deary me mr spargo this is a revelation and you really think sir that john maitland and john barbary are one and the same person i'm sure of it now said spargo i see it this way maitland on his release went out to australia and there he stopped at last he comes back evidently well to do he's murdered the very day of his arrival aylmore is the only man who knows anything of him aylmore won't tell all he knows that's flat but aylmore's admitted that he knew him at some vague date say from twenty-one to twenty-two or three years ago now where did aylmore know him he says in london that's a vague term he won't say where he won't say anything definite he won't even say what he aylmore himself was in those days do you recollect anything of anybody like aylmore coming here to see maitland mr quarterpage i don't answered mr quarterpage maitland was a very quiet retiring fellow sir he was about the quietest man in the town i never remember that he had visitors certainly i've no recollection of such a friend of his as this aylmore from your description of him would be at that time did maitland go up to london much in those days asked spargo mr quarterpage laughed well now to show you what a good memory i have i'll tell you of something that occurred across there at the dragon only a few months before the maitland affair came out there were some of us in there one evening and for a rare thing maitland came in with chamberlain chamberlain happened to remark that he was going up to town next day he was always to and fro and we got talking about london and maitland said in course of conversation that he believed he was about the only man of his age in england and of course he meant of his class and means who'd never even seen london and i don't think he ever went there between that time and his trial in fact i'm sure he didn't for if he had i should have heard of it well that's queer remarked spargo it's very queer for i'm certain maitland and marbury are one and the same person my theory about that old leather box is that maitland had that carefully planted before his arrest that he dug it up when he came out of dartmoor that he took it off to australia with him that he brought it back with him and that of course the silver ticket and the photograph had been in it all these years now at that moment the door of the library was opened and a parlour-maid looked in at her master there's the boots from the dragon at the front door sir she said he's brought two telegrams across from there for mr spargo thinking he might like to have them at once End of chapter 20chapter 21 of the middle temple murder by j s fletcher this librivox recording is in the public domain 
Chapter Twenty One. Arrested. Spargo hurried out to the hall, took the two telegrams from the boots of the dragon, and tearing open the envelopes, read the messages hastily. He went back to Mister Quarterpage. "'Here's important news,' he said as he closed the library door and resumed his seat. "'I'll read these telegrams to you, sir, and then we can discuss them in the light of what we've been talking about this morning. The first is from our office. I told you we sent over to Australia for a full report about Marbury at the place he said he hailed from, Coolumbidgee. That report's just reached the watchman, and they've wired it on to me. It's from the chief of police at Coolumbidgee to the editor of the Watchman, London. John Marbury came to Coolumbidgee in the winter of 1898-9. to He was unaccompanied. He appeared to be in possession of fairly considerable means and bought a share in a small sheep farm from its proprietor, Andrew Robertson, who is still here, and who says that Marbury never told him anything about himself except that he had emigrated for health reasons and was a widower. He mentioned that he had had a son who was dead, and was now without relations. He lived a very quiet, steady life on the sheep farm, never leaving it for many years. About six months ago, however, he paid a visit to Melbourne, and on returning told Robertson that he had decided to return to England in consequence of some news he had received, and must therefore sell his share in the farm. Robertson bought it from him for three thousand pounds and marbury shortly afterwards left for melbourne from what we could gather robertson thinks marbury was probably in command of five or six thousand when he left coolumbidgee he told robertson that he met a man in melbourne who had given him news that surprised him but did not say what news he had in his possession when he left robertson exactly the luggage he brought with him when he came a stout portmanteau and a small square leather box. There are no effects of his left behind at Coolumbidgee. That's all, said Spargo, laying the first of the telegrams on the table, and it seems to me to signify a good deal. But now here's more startling news. This is from Rathbury, the Scotland Yard detective that I told you of, Mr. Quarterpage. He promised, you know, to keep me posted of what went on in my absence. Here's what he says. Fresh evidence tending to incriminate Aylmore has come to hand. Authorities have decided to arrest him on suspicion. You'd better hurry back if you want material for tomorrow's paper. Spargo threw that telegram down, too, waited while the old gentleman glanced at both of them with evident curiosity, and then jumped up. Well, I shall have to go, Mr. Quarterpage, he said. I looked the trains out this morning so as to be in readiness. I can catch the one twenty to Paddington. That'll get me in before half-past four. I've an hour yet. Now, there's another man I want to see in Market Milcaster. That's the photographer, or a photographer. You remember I told you of the photograph found with the silver ticket? Well, I'm calculating that that photograph was taken here, and I want to see the man who took it, if he's alive and I can find him. Mr. Quarterpage rose and put on his hat. "'There's only one photographer in this town, sir,' he said, "'and he's been here for a good many years. Cooper, I'll take you to him. It's only a few doors away.' Spargo wasted no time in letting the photographer know what he wanted. He put a direct question to Mr. Cooper, an elderly man. 
do you remember taking a photograph of the child of john maitland the bank manager some twenty or twenty-one years ago he asked after mr quarterpage had introduced him as a gentleman from london who wanted to ask a few questions quite well sir replied mr cooper as well as if it had been yesterday do you still happen to have a copy of it asked spargo but mr cooper had already turned to a row of file albums he took down one labelled eighteen ninety one and began to search its pages in a minute or two he laid it on his table before his callers there you are sir he said that's the child spargo gave one glance at the photograph and turned to mr quarterpage just as i thought he said that's the same photograph we found in the leather box with the silver ticket i'm obliged to you mr cooper now there's just one more question i want to ask you did you ever supply any further copies of this photograph to anybody after the maitland affair that is after the family had left the town yes replied the photographer i supplied half a dozen copies to miss baylis the child's aunt who as a matter of fact brought him here to be photographed and i can give you her address too he continued beginning to turn over another old file i have it somewhere mr quarterpage nudged spargo that's something i couldn't have done he remarked as i told you she disappeared from brighton when inquiries were made after maitland's release here you are said mr cooper i sent six copies of that photograph to miss baylis in april eighteen ninety five her address was then six chichester square bayswater w spargo rapidly wrote this address down thanked the photographer for his courtesy and went out with mr quarterpage in the street he turned to the old gentleman with a smile well i don't think there's much doubt about that he exclaimed maitland and marbury are the same man mr quarterpage i'm as certain of that as that i see your town hall there and what will you do next sir inquired mr quarterpage thank you as i do for all your kindness and assistance and get off to town by this one-twenty replied spargo and i shan't fail to let you know how things go on one moment said the old gentleman as spargo was hurrying away do you think this mr aylmore really murdered maitland no answered spargo with emphasis i don't and i think we've got a good deal to do before we find out who did spargo purposely let the marbury case drop out of his mind during his journey to town he ate a hearty lunch in the train and talked with his neighbours it was a relief to let his mind and attention turn to something else than the theme which had occupied it unceasingly for so many days but at reading the newspaper boys were shouting the news of the arrest of a member of parliament and spargo glancing out of the window caught sight of a newspaper placard the marbury murder case arrest of mr aylmore he snatched a paper from a boy as the train moved out and unfolding it found a mere announcement in the space reserved for stock press news mr stephen aylmore m p was arrested at two o'clock this afternoon on his way to the house of commons on a charge of being concerned in the murder of john marbury in middle temple lane on the night of june twenty first last it is understood he will be brought up at bow street at ten o'clock to-morrow morning 
Spargo hurried to New Scotland Yard as soon as he reached Paddington. He met Rathbury coming away from his room. At sight of him, the detective turned back. "'Well, so there you are,' he said. "'I suppose you've heard the news.' Spargo nodded as he dropped into a chair. "'What led to it?' he asked abruptly. "'There must have been something.' "'There was something,' he replied. "'The thing, stick, bludgeon, whatever you like to call it, some foreign article, with which Marbury was struck down, was found last night.' "'Well?' asked Spargo. "'It was proved to be Aylmore's property,' answered Rathbury. "'It was a South American curio that he had in his rooms in Fountain Court.' "'Where was it found?' asked Spargo. Rathbury laughed. "'He was a clumsy fellow who did it, whether he was Aylmore or whoever he was,' he replied. "'Do you know it had been dropped into a sewer trap in Middle Temple Lane, actually?' "'Perhaps a merger thought it would be washed out into the Thames and float away. "'But, of course, it was bound to come to light. "'A sewer man found it yesterday evening, "'and it was quickly recognised by the woman who cleans up for Aylmore "'as having been in his rooms ever since she knew him.' "'What does Aylmore say about it?' asked Spargo. "'I suppose he said something. "'Says that the bludgeon is certainly his, "'and that he brought it from South America with him.' announced rathbury but that he doesn't remember seeing it in his rooms for some time and thinks that it was stolen from them hmm said spargo musingly but how do you know that was the thing that marbury was struck down with rathbury smiled grimly there's some of his hair on it mixed with blood he answered no doubt about that well anything come of your jaunt westward "'Yes,' replied Spargo. "'Lots.' "'Good?' asked Rathbury. "'Extra good. I found out who Marbury really was.' "'No. Really?' "'No doubt, to my mind. I'm certain of it.' Rathbury sat down at his desk, watching Spargo with rapt attention. "'And who was he?' he asked. "'John Maitland, once of Market Milcaster,' replied Spargo. "'Ex-bank manager.' also ex-convict 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 he was sentenced at market milcaster quarter sessions in autumn eighteen ninety one to ten years penal servitude for embezzling the bank's money to the tune of over two hundred thousand pounds served his term at dartmoor went to australia as soon or soon after he came out that's who marbury was maitland dead certain rathbury still stared at his caller go on he said tell all about it spargo let's hear every detail i'll tell you all i know after but what i know's nothing to that spargo told him the whole story of his adventures at market milcaster and the detective listened with rapt attention yes he said at the end yes i don't think there's much doubt about that well that clears up a lot doesn't it spargo yawned yes a whole slateful is wiped off there he said i haven't so much interest in marbury or maitland now my interest is all in aylmore rathbury nodded yes he said the thing to find out is who is aylmore or who was he twenty years ago your people haven't found anything out then asked spargo 
nothing beyond the irreproachable history of mr aylmore since he returned to this country a very rich man some ten years since answered rathbury smiling they've no previous dates to go on what are you going to do next spargo seek out that miss bayliss replied spargo you think you could get something there asked rathbury look here said spargo i don't believe for a second aylmore killed marbury i believe i shall get at the truth by following up what i call the maitland trail this miss bayliss must know something if she's alive well now i'm going to report at the office keep in touch with me rathbury he went on then to the watchman office and as he got out of his taxicab at its door another cab came up and set down mr aylmore's daughters End of chapter twenty one chapter twenty two of the middle temple murder by j s fletcher this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter twenty two the blank past jessie aylmore came forward to meet spargo with ready confidence the elder girl hung back diffidently may we speak to you said jessie we have come on purpose to speak to you evelyn didn't want to come but i made her come spargo shook hands silently with evelyn aylmore and motioned them both to follow him he took them straight upstairs to his room and bestowed them in his easiest chairs before he addressed them i've only just got back to town he said abruptly i was sorry to hear the news about your father that's what's brought you here of course but i'm afraid i can't do much i told you that we had no right to trouble mr spargo jessie said evelyn aylmore what can he do to help us jessie shook her head impatiently the watchman's about the most powerful paper in london isn't it she said and isn't mr spargo writing all these articles about the marbury case mr spargo you must help us spargo sat down at his desk and began turning over the letters and papers which had accumulated during his absence to be absolutely frank with you he said presently i don't see how anybody's going to help so long as your father keeps up that mystery about the past that said evelyn quietly is exactly what ronald says jessie but we can't make our father speak mr spargo that he is as innocent as we are of this terrible crime we are certain and we don't know why he wouldn't answer the questions put to him at the inquest and we know no more than you know or any one knows and though i have begged my father to speak he won't say a word we saw this danger ronald mr breton told us and we implored him to tell everything he knew about mr marbury but so far he has simply laughed at the idea that he had anything to do with the murder or could be arrested for it and now and now he's locked up said spargo in his usual matter-of-fact fashion well there are people who have to be saved from themselves you know perhaps you'll have to save your father from the consequences of his own shall we say obstinacy now look here between ourselves how much do you know about your father's past the two sisters looked at each other and then at spargo nothing said the elder absolutely nothing said the younger 
answer a few plain questions said spargo i'm not going to print your reply nor make use of them in any way i'm only asking the questions with a desire to help you have you any relations in england none that we know of replied evelyn nobody you could go to for information about the past asked spargo no nobody spargo drummed his fingers on his blotting pad he was thinking hard how old is your father he asked suddenly he was fifty-nine a few weeks ago answered evelyn and how old are you and how old is your sister demanded spargo i'm twenty and jessie is nearly nineteen where were you born both of us at san gregorio which is in the san jose province of argentina north of montevideo your father was in business there he was in business in the export trade mr spargo there's no secret about that he exported all sorts of things to england and to france skins hides wools dried salts fruit that's how he made his money you don't know how long he'd been there when you were born no was he married when he went out there no he wasn't we do know that he's told us the circumstances of his marriage because they were romantic when he sailed from england to buenos aires he met on the steamer a young lady who he said was like himself relationless and nearly friendless she was going out to argentina as a governess she and my father fell in love with each other and they were married in buenos aires soon after the steamer arrived and your mother is dead my mother died before we came to england i was eight years old and jessie six then and you came to england how long after that two years so that you've been in england ten years and you know nothing whatever of your father's past beyond what you've told me nothing absolutely nothing never heard him talk of you see according to your account your father was a man of getting on to forty when he went out to argentina he must have had a career of some sort in this country have you never heard him speak of his boyhood did he never talk of old times or that sort of thing i never remember hearing my father speak of any period antecedent to his marriage replied evelyn i once asked him a question about his childhood said jessie he answered that his early days had not been very happy ones and that he had done his best to forget them so i never asked him anything again so that it really comes to this remarked spargo you know nothing whatever about your father his family his fortunes his life beyond what you yourselves have observed since you were able to observe that's about it isn't it i should say that that is exactly it answered evelyn just so said spargo and therefore as i told your sister the other day the public will say that your father has some dark secret behind him and that marbury had possession of it and that your father killed him in order to silence him that isn't my view i not only believe your father to be absolutely innocent but i believe that he knows no more than a child unborn of marbury's murder and i'm doing my best to find out who that murderer was by the by since you'll see all about it in tomorrow morning's watchman i may as well tell you that i found out who marbury really was he at this moment 
Spargo's door was opened, and in walked Ronald Breton. He shook his head at sight of the two sisters. "'I thought I should find you here,' he said. "'Jessie said she was coming to see you, Spargo. "'I don't know what good you can do. "'I don't see what good the most powerful newspaper in the world can do. "'My God, everything's about as black as ever it can be. "'Mr. Aylmore, I've just come away from him. "'His solicitor, Stratton, and I have been with him for an hour. "'Is obstinate as ever.' he will not tell more than he has told whatever good can you do spargo when he won't speak about that knowledge of marbury which he must have oh well said spargo perhaps we can give him some information about marbury mr aylmore has forgotten that it's not such a difficult thing to rake up the past as he seems to think it is for example as i was just telling these young ladies i myself have discovered who marbury really was Breton started. "'You have? Without doubt?' he exclaimed. "'Without reasonable doubt. Marbury was an ex-convict.' Spargo watched the effect of this sudden announcement. The two girls showed no sign of astonishment or of unusual curiosity. They received the news with as much unconcern as if Spargo had told them that Marbury was a famous musician. But Ronald Breton started, and it seemed to Spargo that he saw a sense of suspicion dawn in his eyes. "'Marbury! An ex-convict!' he exclaimed. "'You mean that?' "'Read your watchman in the morning,' said Spargo. "'You'll find the whole story there. I'm going to write it tonight when you people have gone. It'll make good reading.' Evelyn and Jessie Aylmore took Spargo's hint and went away. Spargo seeing them to the door with another assurance of his belief in their father's innocence and his determination to hunt down the real criminal Ronald Breton went down with them to the street and saw them into a cab But in another minute he was back in Spargo's room as Spargo had expected He shut the door carefully behind him and turned to Spargo with an eager face I say Spargo is that really so he asked about Marbury being an ex-convict that's so breton i've no more doubt about it than i have that i see you marbury was in reality one john maitland a bank manager of market milcaster who got ten years penal servitude in eighteen ninety one for embezzlement in eighteen ninety one why that's just about the time that aylmore says he knew him exactly and it just strikes me said spargo sitting down at his desk and making a hurried note it just strikes me didn't aylmore say he knew marbury in london certainly replied breton in london hmm mused spargo that's queer because maitland had never been in london up to the time of his going to dartmoor whatever he may have done when he came out of dartmoor and of course aylmore had gone to south america long before that look here breton he continued aloud have you access to aylmore will you can you see him before he's brought up at bow street to-morrow yes answered breton i can see him with his solicitor then listen said spargo to-morrow morning you'll find the whole story of how i proved marbury's identity with maitland in the watchman read it as early as you can get an interview with aylmore as early as you can make him read it every word before he's brought up beg him if he values his own safety and his daughter's peace of mind 
to throw away all that foolish reserve and to tell all he knows about maitland twenty years ago he should have done that at first why i was asking his daughter some questions before you came in they know absolutely nothing of their father's history previous to the time when they began to understand things don't you see that aylmore's career previous to his return to england is a blank past i know i know said breton yes although i've gone there a great deal i never heard aylmore speak of anything earlier than his argentine experiences and yet he must have been getting on when he went out there thirty-seven or eight at least remarked spargo well aylmore's more or less of a public man and no public man can keep his life hidden nowadays by the by how did you get to know the aylmores my guardian mr elphick and i met them in switzerland answered breton we kept up the acquaintance after our return mr elphick still interesting himself in the marbury case asked spargo very much so and so is old cardlestone at the foot of whose stairs the thing came off i dined with them last night and they talked of little else said breton and their theory oh still the murder for the sake of robbery replied breton old cardlestone is furious that such a thing could have happened at his very door he says that there ought to be a thorough inquiry into every tenant of the temple longish business that observed spargo well run away now breton i must write shall you be at bow street to-morrow morning asked breton as he moved to the door it's to be at ten-thirty no i shan't replied spargo it'll only be a remand and i know already just as much as i should hear there i've got something much more important to do but you'll remember what i asked of you get aylmore to read my story in the watchman and beg him to speak out and tell all he knows all and when breton had gone spargo again murmured those last words all he knows all end of chapter twenty two chapter twenty three of the middle temple murder by j s fletcher this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter twenty three miss bayliss next day a little before noon spargo found himself in one of those pretentious yet dismal bayswater squares which are almost entirely given up to the trade calling or occupation of the lodging and boarding-house keeper they are very pretentious those squares with their many storied houses their stuccoed frontages and their pilastered and balconied doorways innocent country folk coming into them from the neighbouring station of paddington take them to be the residences of the dukes and earls who of course live nowhere else but in london they are further encouraged in this belief by the fact that young male persons in evening dress are often seen at the doorways in more or less elegant attitudes these of course are taken by the country folk to be the young lords enjoying the air of bayswater but others more knowing are aware that they are swiss or german waiters whose linen might be cleaner spargo gauged the character of the house at which he called as soon as the door was opened to him there was the usual smell of eggs and bacon of fish and chops the usual mixed and ancient collection of overcoats wraps and sticks in the hall the usual sort of parlour-maid to answer the bell and presently in answer to his inquiries 
there was the usual type of landlady confronting him a more than middle-aged person who desired to look younger and made attempts in the way of false hair teeth and a little rouge and who wore that somewhat air and smile in which its wearer under these circumstances always means that she is considering whether you will be able to cheat her or whether she will be able to see you you wish to see miss bayliss said this person examining spargo closely miss bayliss does not often see anybody i hope said spargo politely that miss bayliss is not an invalid no she's not an invalid replied the landlady but she's not as young as she was and she's an objection to strangers is it anything i can tell her no said spargo but you can if you please take her a message from me will you kindly give her my card and tell her that i wish to ask her a question about john maitland of market milcaster and that i should be much obliged if she would give me a few minutes perhaps you will sit down said the landlady she led spargo into a room which opened out upon a garden in it two or three old ladies evidently inmates were sitting the landlady left spargo to sit with them and to amuse himself by watching them knit or sew or read the papers and he wondered if they always did these things every day and if they would go on doing them until a day would come when they would do them no more and he was beginning to feel very dreary when the door opened and a woman entered whom spargo after one sharp glance at her decided to be a person who was undoubtedly out of the common and as she slowly walked across the room towards him he let his first glance lengthen into a look of steady inspection the woman whom spargo thus narrowly inspected was of very remarkable appearance she was almost masculine she stood nearly six feet in height she was of a masculine gait and tread and spare muscular and athletic what at once struck spargo about her face was the strange contrast between her dark eyes and her white hair the hair worn in abundant coils round a well-shaped head was of the most snowy whiteness the eyes of a real coal blackness as were also the eyebrows above them the features were well cut and of a striking firmness the jaw square and determined and spargo's first thought on taking all this in was that miss bayliss seemed to have been fitted by nature to be a prison wardress or the matron of a hospital or the governess of an unruly girl and he began to wonder if he would ever manage to extract anything out of those firmly locked lips miss bayliss on her part looked spargo over as if she was half-minded to order him to instant execution and spargo was so impressed by her that he made a profound bow and found a difficulty in finding his tongue mr spargo she said in a deep voice which seemed peculiarly suited to her of i see the watchman you wish to speak to me spargo again bowed in silence she signed him to the window near which they were standing open the casement if you please she commanded him we will walk in the garden this is not private spargo obediently obeyed her orders she swept through the opened window and he followed her it was not until they had reached the bottom of the garden that she spoke again i understand that you desire to ask me some questions about john maitland of market milcaster she said before you put it i must ask you a question 
do you wish any reply i may give you for publication not without your permission replied spargo i should not think of publishing anything you may tell me except with your express permission she looked at him gloomily seemed to gather an impression of his good faith and nodded her head in that case she said what do you want to ask i have lately had reason for making certain inquiries about john maitland answered spargo i suppose you read the newspapers and possibly the watchman miss bayliss but miss bayliss shook her head i read no newspapers she said i have no interest in the affairs of the world i have work which occupies all my time i give my whole devotion to it then you have not recently heard of what is known as the marbury case a case of a man who was found murdered asked spargo i have not she answered i am not likely to hear such things spargo suddenly realized that the power of the press is not quite as great nor as far-reaching as very young journalists hold it to be and that there actually are even in london people who can live quite cheerfully without a newspaper he concealed his astonishment and went on well he said i believe that the murdered man known to the police as john marbury was in reality your brother-in-law john maitland in fact miss bayliss i'm absolutely certain of it he made this declaration with some emphasis and looked at his stern companion to see how she was impressed but miss bayliss showed no sign of being impressed i can quite believe that mr spargo she said coldly it is no surprise to me that john maitland should come to such an end he was a thoroughly bad and unprincipled man who brought the most terrible disgrace to those who were unfortunately connected with him he was likely to die a bad man's death i may ask you a few questions about him suggested spargo in his most insinuating manner you may so long as you do not drag my name into the papers she replied but pray how do you know that i have the sad shame of being john maitland's sister-in-law i found that out at market milcaster said spargo the photographer told me cooper ah she exclaimed the questions i want to ask are very simple said spargo but your answers may materially help me you remember maitland going to prison of course miss bayliss laughed a laugh of scorn could i ever forget it she exclaimed did you ever visit him in prison asked spargo visit him in prison she said indignantly visits in prison are to be paid to those who deserve them who are repentant not to scoundrels who are hardened in their sin all right did you ever see him after he left prison i saw him for he forced himself upon me i could not help myself he was in my presence before i was aware that he had even been released what did he come for asked spargo to ask for his son who had been in my charge she replied that's the thing i want to know about said spargo do you know what a certain lot of people in market milcaster say to this day miss bayliss they say that you were in at the game with maitland that you had a lot of the money placed in your charge that when maitland went to prison you took the child away first to brighton then abroad disappeared with him and that you made a home ready for maitland when he came out that's what's said by some people in market milcaster 
Miss Bayliss's stern lips curled. "'People in Market Milcaster!' she exclaimed. "'All the people I ever knew in Market Milcaster had about as many brains between them as that cat on the wall there. As for making a home for John Maitland, I would have seen him die in the gutter of absolute want before I would have given him a crust of dry bread.' "'You appear to have a terrible dislike of this man,' observed Spargo, astonished at her vehemence. "'I had, and I have,' she answered. "'He tricked my sister into a marriage with him when he knew that she would rather have married an honest man who worshipped her. He treated her with quiet, infernal cruelty. He robbed her and me of the small fortunes her father left us.' "'Ah,' said Spargo. "'Well,' "'So you say Maitland came to you when he came out of prison to ask for his boy. "'Did he take the boy?' "'No. The boy was dead.' "'Dead, eh? Then I suppose Maitland did not stop long with you.' Miss Bayliss laughed her scornful laugh. "'I showed him the door,' she said. "'Well, did he tell you that he was going to Australia?' inquired Spargo. "'I should not have listened to anything that he told me, Mr. Spargo,' she answered. "'Then, in short,' said Spargo, "'you never heard of him again?' "'I never heard of him again,' she declared passionately. "'And I only hope that what you tell me is true, "'and that Marbury really was Maitland.'" End of chapter 23《Chapter Twenty Four of the Middle Temple Murder by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Four Mother Gutch. Spargo, having exhausted the list of questions which he had thought out on his way to Bayswater, was about to take his leave of Miss Bayliss when a new idea suddenly occurred to him, and he turned back to that formidable lady. "'I've just thought of something else,' he said. "'I told you that I'm certain Marbury was Maitland, "'and that he came to a sad end. "'Murdered.' "'And I've told you,' she replied scornfully, "'that in my opinion no end could be too bad for him.' "'Just so. I understand you,' said Spargo. "'But I didn't tell you that he was not only murdered, but robbed. "'Robbed of probably a good deal.' There's good reason to believe that he had securities, banknotes, loose diamonds, and other things on him to the value of a large amount. He'd several thousand pounds when he left Coolumbidgee in New South Wales, where he'd lived quietly for some years. Miss Bayliss smiled sourly. "'What's all this to me?' she asked. "'Possibly nothing. But you see, that money—' those securities, may be recovered. And as the boy you speak of is dead, there surely must be somebody who's entitled to the lot. It's worth having, Miss Bayliss, and there's strong belief on the part of the police that it will turn up. This was a bit of ingenious bluff on the part of Spargo. He watched its effect with keen eyes. But Miss Bayliss was adamant, and she looked as scornful as ever. "'I say again, what's all that to me?' she exclaimed. "'Well, but hadn't the dead boy any relatives on his father's side?' asked Spargo. 
I know you're his aunt on the mother's side, and as you're indifferent, perhaps I can find some on the other side. It's very easy to find all these things out, you know. Miss Baylis, who had begun to stalk back to the house in gloomy and majestic fashion, let Spargo see plainly that this part of the interview was distasteful to her, suddenly paused in her stride and glared at the young journalist. "'Easy to find all these things out?' she repeated. Spargo caught, or fancied he caught, a note of anxiety in her tone. He was quick to turn his fancy to practical purpose. "'Oh, easy enough,' he said. "'I could find out all about Maitland's family through that boy. Quite, quite easily.' Miss Bayliss had stopped now and stood glaring at him. "'How?' she demanded. "'I'll tell you,' said Spargo, with cheerful alacrity. "'It is, of course, the easiest thing in the world to trace all about his short life.' I suppose I can find the register of his birth at Market Milcaster, and you, of course, will tell me where he died. By the by, where did he die, Miss Bayliss? But Miss Bayliss was going on again to the house. I shall tell you nothing more, she said angrily. I've told you too much already, and I believe all you're here for is to get some news for your paper. But I will at any rate tell you this. When Maitland went to prison, his child would have been defenceless but for me. He'd have gone to the workhouse but for me. He hadn't a single relation in the world but me, on either father's or mother's side. And even at my age, old woman as I am, I'd rather beg my bread in the street, I'd rather starve and die, than touch a penny piece that had come from John Maitland. That's all. Then, without further word, without offering to show Spargo the way out, she marched in at the open window and disappeared. And Spargo, knowing no other way, was about to follow her when he heard a sudden rustling sound in the shadow by which they had stood, and the next moment a queer, cracked, horrible voice, suggesting all sorts of things, said distinctly, and yet in a whisper, "'Young man!' Spargo turned and stared at the privet-hedge behind him. It was thick and bushy, and in its full summer green, but it seemed to him that he saw a nondescript shape behind. "'Who's there?' he demanded. "'Somebody listening?' There was a curious cackle of laughter from behind the hedge. Then the cracked, husky voice spoke again. "'Young man, don't you move or look as if you were talking to anybody.' "'Do you know where the King of Madagascar public house is in this quarter of the town, young man?' "'No,' answered Spargo. "'Certainly not.' "'Well, anybody'll tell you when you get outside, young man,' continued the queer voice of the unseen person. "'Go there, and wait at the corner by the King of Madagascar, and I'll come there to you at the end of half an hour. Then I'll tell you something, young man. I'll tell you something.' now run away young man run away to the king of madagascar i'm coming the voice ended in low horrible cachination which made spargo feel queer but he was young enough to be in love with adventure and he immediately turned on his heel without so much as a glance at the privet hedge and went across the garden and through the house 
and let himself out at the door and at the next corner of the square he met a policeman and asked him if he knew where the king of madagascar was first to the right second to the left answered the policeman tersely you can't miss it anywhere round there it's a landmark and spargo found the landmark a great square-built tavern easily and he waited at a corner of it wondering what he was going to see and intensely curious about the owner of the queer voice with all its suggestions of he knew not what and suddenly there came up to him an old woman and leered at him in a fashion that made him suddenly realize how dreadful old age may be spargo had never seen such an old woman as this in his life she was dressed respectably better than respectably her gown was good her bonnet was smart her smaller fittings were good but her face was evil it showed unmistakable signs of a long devotion to the bottle the old eyes leered and ogled the old lips were wicked spargo felt a sense of disgust almost amounting to nausea but he was going to hear what the old harridan had to say and he tried not to look what he felt well he said almost roughly well well young man there you are said his new acquaintance let us go inside young man there's a quiet little place where a lady can sit and take her drop of gin i'll show you and if you're good to me i'll tell you something about that cat that you were talking to just now but you'll give me a little matter to put in my pocket young man old ladies like me have a right to buy little comforts you know little comforts spargo followed this extraordinary person into a small parlour within the attendant who came in response to a ring showed no astonishment at her presence he also seemed to know exactly what she required which was a certain brand of gin sweetened and warm and spargo watched her curiously as with shaking hand she pushed up the veil which hid little of her wicked old face and lifted the glass to her mouth with a zest which was not thirst but pure greed of liquor almost instantly he saw a new light steal into her eyes and she laughed in a voice that grew clearer with every sound she made ah young man she said with a confidential nudge of the elbow that made spargo long to get up and fly i wanted that it's done me good when i finish that you'll pay for another for me and perhaps another they'll do me still more good and you'll give me a little matter of money won't you young man not till i know what i'm giving it for replied spargo you'll be giving it because i'm going to tell you that if it's made worth my while i can tell you or somebody that sent you more about jane bayless than anybody in the world i'm not going to tell you that now young man i'm sure you don't carry in your pocket what i shall want for my secret not you by the look of you i'm only going to show you that i have the secret eh who are you asked spargo the woman leered and chuckled what are you going to give me young man she asked spargo put his fingers in his pocket and pulled out two half sovereigns look here he said showing his companion the coins 
if you can tell me anything of importance you shall have these but no trifling now and no wasting of time if you have anything to tell out with it the woman stretched out a trembling claw-like hand but let me hold one of those young man she implored let me hold one of those beautiful bits of gold i shall tell you all the better if i hold one of them let me there's a good young gentleman spargo gave her one of the coins and resigned himself to his fate whatever it might be you won't get the other unless you tell something he said who are you anyway the woman who had begun mumbling and chuckling over the half-sovereign grinned horribly at the boarding-house yonder young man they call me mother gutch she answered but my proper name is mrs sabina gutch and once upon a time i was a good-looking young woman and when my husband died i went to jane bayliss as housekeeper and when she retired from that and came to live in that boarding-house where we live now she was forced to bring me with her and to keep me why had she to do that young man heaven knows answered spargo because i've got a hold on her young man i've got a secret of hers continued mother gutch she'd be scared to death if she knew i'd been behind that hedge and had heard what she said to you and she'd be more than scared if she knew that you and i were here talking but she's grown hard and near with me and she won't give me a penny to get a drop of anything with and an old woman like me has a right to her little comforts and if you'll buy the secret young man i'll split on her there and then when you pay the money before i talk about buying any secrets said spargo you'll have to prove to me that you've a secret to sell that's worth my buying and i will prove it said mother gutch with sudden fierceness touch the bell and let me have another glass and then i'll tell you now she went on more quietly spargo noticed that the more she drank the more rational she became and that her nerves seemed to gain strength and her whole appearance to be improved now you came to her to find out about her brother-in-law maitland that went to prison didn't you well demanded spargo and about that boy of his she continued you heard all that was said answered spargo i'm waiting to hear what you have to say but mother gutch was resolute in having her own way she continued her questions and she told you that maitland came and asked for the boy and that she told him the boy was dead didn't she she went on well said spargo despairingly she did what then mother gutch took an appreciative pull at her glass and smiled knowingly what then she chuckled all lies young man the boy isn't dead any more than i am and my secret is well demanded spargo impatiently what is it this answered mother gutch digging her companion in the ribs i know what she did with him End of chapter twenty four what's so special about hero bread's soft fluffy and delicious breads buns and tortillas 
Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.